on the right. It's called The Dream King. They're going to reference it, talk more about it, but pick up a copy of that as well. Um, so we've got a lot going on. So after church today, we're going to, um, for those who would like, go over to the Methodist Church, which is right here around the corner on John Street. Um, so literally, you just go up to John and hang a left, and you're going to see it there on the left. Um, and there's a whole museum over there, Revival History. And we're going to be talking about revival history here this morning, so I'll say no more. But you're going to want to come. We're going to pray. We're going to just have some time to take in what God has done in this city. And it's part of the, the wells that we're, that we're digging, that we're redigging here in, in this part of Manhattan specifically. So that's at 2 o'clock today. Um, throughout the week, we have prayer here. So we have prayer here Monday, 6.30, 8.30. It's a harvest watch, praying for souls to be saved in New York. Tuesday, we're here from 12 to 4 um, for prayer and intercession. Wednesday, we're here 12 to 2, praying for businesses in the city. And, oh, and Tuesday night, I almost forgot, we have our Extraordinary Relationship class. This is the last session. But you know what? Even if you miss them all, you can still come. We're going to be talking about offense, so that'll make you get excited about coming. Um, so God's stirring things up in you this weekend. Like, you want to do something about it? Like, one thing you do is go to this class. And uh, so it's going to be at 7.30, Extraordinary Relationships. It's for singles, married, you know, sort of complicated relationships. No matter where you're at, you can come, and uh, we're going to meet you there. So um, Friday, uh, this is a new announcement, so please note this. Friday, our Encounter God service is going to be canceled. So this Friday, I know. I love that response, though. Um, so this Friday, we're not going to be having um, our service uh, with Memorial Day weekend and all that going on, but we will be hopping in the next Friday, which set up my slide. Jay Thomas is coming the next Friday. Is that, does that make you happy? No, man, I tried. Um, so Jay's going to be coming the next weekend. Um, that's going to be the 31st, and he'll be here on Sunday as well, June 2nd. Uh, other things going on, couples group is next Saturday, um, 526 at 2.30. Oh, is it Sunday? Is that 526? Oh, it's Sunday. Yeah, 526. That would be a Sunday at 2.30. Um, if you want more information on that, you can reach out to Kenny or Ruth. Kenny, raise your hand over there. That wonderful gentleman carrying the child. Um, so carrying the child, that's funny. But, um, but yeah, Kenny and Ruth are, help lead that up. Um, we also have a new class going on. It's going to start. It's gonna, this is like a really exciting class. You know, we did, we did Hearing God's Voice through the prophetic class, and now we're going to be doing a inner, it's, gonna be, it's called Inner Healing and Health. And it's really a blend of psychology versus and inner healing methods coming together. Uh, Dr. Jen Bounds is going to lead that. She's an amazing, where is Jen? Here she is right here. She's the doctor, and she, she combines, you know, this beautiful world of understanding trauma and understanding Holy Spirit and how the Spirit of God comes in and, and heals. Um, but she knows a lot of stuff, so we're excited to have her. It's a five-week course. You need to sign up for that. So if you haven't signed up, go to the welcome desk or go to our website. Sign up today. It's a five-week course all throughout June. So it's Sunday after service every Sunday in June. And we want you to go to the whole thing. Like, let's get immersed, right? Like, like, let's not just come and learn a few tools. Let's activate and do the, and honestly, like, I'm going to go on a little thing here. That's what's been, this weekend, what God's been doing, it's like, it's us, it's up to us to steward it, right? Like, I was thinking about Paul, he gets knocked off his horse and has this amazing encounter, but then what does he do? He connects with the body, he meets these 
Barnabas in his life, people that can mentor and raise him up, people he can pray with and burn with. And I really believe things that God has stirred in this weekend, like how we walk, that, how we respond is to keep turning to him, but it's also to turn to your neighbor. It's also to bring other people in, whether it's to hurt and pain, whether it's to your dreams, that, which that could be pretty sensitive too, bringing people in. And that's how we really steward what God's been doing here. So that was a free, a free one there. Um, all right, I got two more. Um, so we, our rooted series. We, if you aren't, if you aren't rooted um, in the Bible, this is a way to get rooted, and it's really easy, right? So it's a YouTube or not YouTube, U version app. It's a Bible app. Get on your phone, and we read together through. Right now, we're going through the Book of Isaiah, so we're reading um, the the Bible together as a community. You can post on this app each day things that you're you're feeling and sensing, and we all kind of share that platform. So you can sign up for that in the lobby. We're going through Isaiah. You can hop on, right? Even if you're like 50 chapter, chapters like behind, that's okay. Just hop in. And the first 50 chapters of Isaiah are pretty rough anyway, so you'll be happy <laughs> at Isaiah 50. You'll be like, man, now this is the good stuff. I mean, it's all good, but you know what I mean. Um, so, so yeah, that's what we have going on. Once again, really encourage you to go to the welcome desk and make sure you get signed up for these things that we have going on. Uh, I'm going to bring up uh, Pastor Bill White. Let's give it up for Pastor Bill. Bless God. How many have been here all weekend with us? Uh, it's been an amazing time. How many, how many, this is, you just got out here on Sunday. Here's, can I have a hand? Okay. Uh, about 25% of us maybe. That's awesome. Well, you, all, everyone's in for a treat. Um, Matt and Will have such a story, such a prophetic history of, of how God connects generations uh, and brings together uh, the past into the present and launches us into a destiny in the future that he's, he's written in our books. You know, it says in the Psalms that all of our days he's written in, our book, in his book before the foundation of the earth was laid. And it's about stepping into the story that God has for us. And uh, this is such a testimony of what God has done, is doing, and where we're going and uh, just just listen. I, I, I want to encourage you, just listen with the ears of the Spirit because God wants to give understanding because it's not that, just their story. This is a story about what God is doing across the earth and in your life. And, and ask him, like, God, what, do you, what, what, what was written in my book? What was written in my history? Where, where are you taking me? And, uh, and I know he's going he's gonna to bring that to pass. So I'm going to ask... Why don't you guys, oh, first we're going to have De Havilland, now, be careful because she could bring the whole house down. <laughs> she, she did that last night, but bless the Lord. If you can guys can cue up the video, I'm actually going to be short this morning, I promise. I'm tired. Last night was good, but I'm exhausted, no. If you can play the video here, um, greatly appreciate it. Community out of the Latino community in this hour for such a time as this. 
So that's our ministry, 818 The Sign. And this summer, August 8th through the 10th, we're actually having an 818 gathering. And I just want to take a few minutes to share the history of 818. How many number people do we have in the house? 222s, 1111s? Right, those five, 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 seven, seven, sevens. Well, we happen to be eight, one, eight. Uh, about um, ten years ago, I was serving at the House of Prayer in Kansas City, and I started to see this number on eight, one, eight. I would see it on license plates. I would see it on clocks. I would see it. Uh, I would not even set my alarm, and my alarm would go off on eight, eighteen. And I knew that I was in a, what meaneth thou this moment, God? I knew the Lord was saying something, but I didn't have any understanding. And so I heard about this beautiful, handsome African-American guy named Will Ford. Woo -woo. And, um, and that he knew, understood numbers. So I went up to him at a gathering and I said, excuse me, Mr. Ford. <laughs> hey, you. And I said, um, do you happen to know anything about numbers? Do you want to go on a date after this? So come on, ladies. Come on. We got to be deep, but we got to know when we're in our moment. And so um, I asked him, and he, he, he said to me, he said, I know what this number means because I've been seeing it for years. He said, there's been a bunch of intercessors across the country that have seen it. He goes, it's actually not just a number. It's a scripture. And he took me to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, where Isaiah the prophet says, he's talking about his whole family. And he says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders. And he begins to share this verse with me, how he believes that right now in our nation that we've seen uh, 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 sons that represent the crisis in America because of the prison population, because of the opiate crisis, that we are seeing the sons of the crisis, but God is raising up sons that represent the turnaround and that they would become signs to a nation. And we knew that in the context this was referring to black, the urban, I don't want to say, I want to say the inner cities of America, but also the United States, that God was going to raise up uh, uh, urban, the urban community would be a sign that God was going to bring healing and revival to America. And so we started this gathering called the 818 The Sign Gathering. And we, we did our first gathering in Atlanta, uh, and now we're doing our second one in Dallas, Texas. So we want to invite all of you guys to join us for this conference August 8th through the 10th. Amen. We want to have Matt and Will come up. <laughs> She'll be back up. <laughs> you can bet that. But yeah, Isaiah 818, and uh, just be, be real brief. I, I learned that uh, after I kept seeing the number over and over again, God uses, he distracts me with that kind of stuff, and it takes me to the scriptures, you know. I'm not into the numerology thing, but it takes me to the scriptures, right? And so, yeah, sometimes it takes you to a wife, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I know, she's waving a ring around, right? But Isaiah had these two sons. One son, his name was Meher Shalal Hathbass. You know, sounds like I'm speaking in tongues, but his, his name literally means swift to the spoil, speedily to the prey. In other words, that son represented the crisis that was in the nation, right? And God began to speak to me about these sons and daughters that represent the sign of the crisis of broken covenants. But the, the beautiful thing is that Isaiah had another son. He shows up in Isaiah 7 and 3. His name is Shereshub, right? Another kind of funny sounding name. But Shereshub literally means a remnant shall return. So one son represented the crisis, but the other one represented the call. One son represented the, the dilemma, the other one represented the deliverance. One son represented the turmoil, the other son represented the turnaround. 
God's saying he's raising up a remnant that's going to so radically turn their hearts to him. They're going to turn their families around. They're going to turn their community around. That God's going to use them to turn a nation around. God's raising up the sign of the turnaround. So it's one thing to walk in signs of wonders, but it's another thing to become a sign of wonder. And that's what God is doing right now because I definitely, I, I believe, as Isaiah 8.18, the family is the sign. Jesus quoted it. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.13 said that Jesus said, I and the children who the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders. Wow. All right. So we get to be a part of this family of God that we, we become this redemptive sign of what God is doing in the earth. And so uh, it kind of takes me to uh, what we'll talk about today with, 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 with Mad Night. Go to Joshua. Talk about more of these signs. Joshua chapter 4. Turn on your Bible or turn to your Bible. Now this generation I'm talking to, right? Joshua chapter 4, verse 4. So Joshua called the 12 men who were appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. Here we go with the signs, right? Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later on saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, if God says something once, that's good enough for me and that's good enough for you, right? But he's, if he says it twice, he's really trying to get his point across. Go all the way down to... Uh, the bottom there, like verse 19. Now, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of the, of the Jericho. And all those 12 stones, and those 12 stones were they had taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until he had crossed, until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray. God, we ask you. Raise us up to be a sign. Raise up a new altar. God, on these old stones, on these old memories, release a new fire for the next generation. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Matter of fact, I have a powerful video. I want to show a little clip of that. Go to, uh, if you go ahead and play that uh, MLK video, for those of you who haven't seen it, this is one of my favorites. Isn't that powerful? Yeah, so um, powerful speech given at another memorial, the Lincoln Memorial. But the whole, uh, whole idea about memorials, it comes from Joshua chapter 4. Yeah. 
That's the first time memorials ever mentioned. And Dr. King mentions that there. And I love that speech because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. <laughs> and this pot was passed down by former slaves in my family. It's a memorial stone. Right? And here's the thing. When Joshua crosses the, this Jordan River, let's give you a little bit of backdrop. So there was this whole generation of people who uh, basically they had heard the stories about the Red Sea parted, but uh, they had never seen a Red Sea part. Joshua and Caleb were the only two people from the previous generation that were still alive at that time. Everyone else had died off in the, in the wilderness while they wandered around in the desert. But for 40 years, there was a generation that uh, never had shoes that wore out. They never had clothes that wore out. They had this little cakey white stuff that fell down every day called manna that they ate every day. In other words, the supernatural was just normal for them. And they were basically the recipients of all those who had sacrificed before them who left slavery. Right. And so but they come to this place called Jericho with this, this, this amazing nation that was strong country and everyone feared these people at this time. They had this huge wall. And so they, God says, you know, what? I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. So I'm going to part the Jordan River the same way I part the Red Sea. And I'm going to demonstrate something to this generation and send a message to Jericho at the same time. Kill two birds with one stone. So. He parts the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea. And then the Lord says, you know what? I should have had a V8. Now, all the older people got that joke, right? The generation of X folks, y'all remember that old V8 commercial, right? <laughs> I should have had a V8, right? <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to slap your head when you do that, right? <laughs> right? There was a generation before them that had seen the Red Sea parted. There's going to be a generation after them that haven't seen the Jordan River parted. So here's what I want you to do as a sign for the next generation. I want you to grab stones out of the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe, right, and pile them up on either side of the Jordan, even in the middle of the Jordan. Now, these weren't little rocks. They were huge boulders. They had to carry them on their shoulders. That's how big they were. And they would pile them up. He said, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask their fathers later on saying, what do these stones mean to you? You should tell them, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. It's flood season, on dry ground. And the same God apart the Red Sea is the same God apart the Jordan River, and they'll part whatever circumstance for you. Amen. That's what this pot has meant for my family. It's a memorial stone from slavery that said the same God apart of slavery will part whatever circumstance for us. And it's, all, it's a part of all of our inheritance. It's this memorial stone from that time period. And here's the thing that I love about God. When God saw those 12 memorial stones, you know, he didn't see a pile of rocks. What he saw was the 12 great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. God loves to remember. He loves to remember. You know, you, you think about, uh, you know, uh, if I were to hang you my scrapbook, right, you probably would uh, make fun of some of those afros from back in the day, <laughs> right? Especially what makes fun of some of those polyester suits, right? I, I would. But they're coming back, so don't throw, don't throw them out too fast. But if I was to get that same scrapbook back, I would look at some of those pictures, and I would weep over the battles that I fought with this person, the things overcame with that person. So we're made in God's image and likeness, and we love to remember. That's why Instagram and Facebook is worth so much. It's the place where we house our memories, all right? 
the houses that burned down in Redding, California at that time period, what was the one thing that people were care? Did they, they care about the brick? Did they care about the mortar? Did they care about the cars? No. My scrapbook. That scrapbook from grandma. Where, oh, that's the, those are the things we love to remember. We're made in God's image and likeness. God loves to remember too. And it provokes him to move for the next generation. That's what generational blessings primarily are all about. God sees the offspring of one of his friends. And he remembers his covenant devotion to their offspring. To a thousand generations. That means basically forever. All right, so it's like with Jonathan and David. David becomes king. Jonathan's dead and gone. And so... <clears throat> He says this in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. He says, who the household of Saul can I show kindness to for Jonathan's sake, his good friend? He then rephrases it in verse 3. And he says, who the household of Saul can I show the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake? In other words, this is what the kindness of God looks like. So they go find this broken, busted up kid named Mephibosheth who knows nothing about the covenant. And he brings him into the house to live in the palace with King David. Why? Because David is still under the influence of Jonathan's devotion to him. But he said, this is what the kindness of God looks like. Listen, if you will covenant yourself to God in the place of prayer, in the place of devotion, live out a life that is totally laid down to him, God will, will visit your offspring's offspring, offspring. Amen. Because he loves to remember. He loves to remember. He hadn't forgotten about the prayers of your grandmama, your granddaddy, your mother, your father. He hasn't forgotten about the things he promised them in the place of prayer. I'm telling you, I just want to say it like this. I know what Mephibosheth felt like. Yeah, because the people who had this pot and prayed underneath this, their prayers have haunted me down. And this pot, when God sees this pot, he doesn't see an old cast iron kettle. You know what he sees? He sees a prayer meeting in the middle of the night where people risk their lives to come and pray. For some of you who don't understand the story, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I hadn't really made a connection to this part or that story until I went to a little prayer meeting in Colorado Springs, Colorado. This man, Dutch Sheets, were there, and he was talking about prayer, and he introduced this concept of prayer that I'd never had heard, never understood before, talking about synergy. He said that synergy is when you take two separate things and when you connect them together, they don't create an addition of power but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. All right, so think about it. In the natural, got to set up something so that when we work together, it produces not an additional release of results but an exponential multiplied release of results. All right? That's in the natural. But in the spiritual, one could put 1,000 to flight and two could put what? 10,000 to flight. That's synergy. So think about it. You start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. Start getting all this agreement in prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? But then Dutch said something that was so powerful at this prayer gathering. He said, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. Talked about how he's at his alma mater leading the student body in prayer. He's going back to, there to be a guest speaker. And the Lord said to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And Dutch thought, okay, this is kind of strange. Holy Spirit, is that really you? Because that man's dead. <laughs> he's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not talking to the dead. <laughs> so he's kind of praying, leading the prayer meeting with one eye open, one eye closed, like, <laughs> God, is this you? But then he hears the Lord say this. 
I didn't say agree with him. I said agree with his prayers. His prayers are still alive before my throne. There are things I promise this man in prayer that I want to release into the school, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. It's like with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got to start something. One generation and complete it exponentially through future generations to come. Hebrews 11, 39, and 40 says it like this. All these by faith, they were proved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they would be made perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. Because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. You know, Jesus said it best. He said, what greater works of these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And it reminded me of those memorial stones. You know, the next time the memorial stones show up, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. The nation is halting between two opinions, between Baal worship and all the things that were going on in that day. The prophets of Baal are there. For those you, most of you know the story. But then after the prophets of Baal do their thing and nothing works, Elijah rebuilds the altar. But guess what he uses to rebuild the altar? Go back and check it out. He uses 12 memorial stones. He used the 12 memorial stones from Joshua's day, knowing that those memorial stones would provoke God into a time of remembrance so he builds an altar in other words your prayer life is built your prayer life is built <laughs> off the memorial stones of all of the history of God's faithfulness in your family even in the nation that's what the cross is all about every time the, you say in the name of Jesus the father's heart is flooded with the memories of the devotion and the love of his son and he <laughs> releases answers on, as a result of your connection to him. That makes sense. So he takes these 12 memorial stones and he builds this altar and he prays. And he's basically saying this, God, on these old stones, on these old memories, release a new fire for the next generation. So when Dutch said that, I was wrecked. I was a wreck because I remember this pot in my family that's been assigned to us. It was used by the slaves in our family. They used it for cooking, but secretly used it for prayer because they were beaten but a slave master, if he heard him praying for freedom. He didn't want them to pray for freedom or get any kind of hope for freedom or desire for freedom. So he refused to let them pray. He would literally beat them if they prayed. But listen, these folks were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So they sneak into a barn late at night. I know, that's what's up, right? <laughs> sneak into a barn late at night while everyone was sleeping on the plantation. But to make sure their prayers weren't heard, they used this pot. This is the very pot they used. They would take the pot and turn it upside down and prop it up with rocks so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the, between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. So one day freedom comes as this young teenage girl decides to keep this pot and this story in our family. Why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps the pot and the story in her family, and she passed it on to Harriet Lockett, who passed it on to Noah Lockett, who passed it on to William Ford Sr., then William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference. I'm thinking about the heart that God had given me for a revival. Thinking about the heart that he's given me for the country and the next generation, I think, my God, I can come, I can come in agreement with the prayers of my forefathers. 
and take up their unfinished business for the freedom of the next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. We, we started this whole prayer journey that we that got birth called the Kettle Tour. But let me tell you what happened. I began to study about the people who were also contending at that time period. It wasn't just those black Christian slaves, but also white Christian abolitionists. They knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. These folks, their lives down for each other. Many of those slaves, uh, those, those uh, abolitionists, they had their houses burnt. They were lynched as well right along with the slaves because they chose to suffer with the people of God like Moses rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And it was the prayers of that godly remnant that birthed the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. And so there was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. Everybody thought it was settled law because it said that, you know, the, sl the slave or the black man didn't have any, wouldn't recognize as a person in the, in the courtroom. But that got broken in the hearts of the people in the country because of revival. So that's why I'm daring to believe the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put it into systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can shut down the opiate crisis in the suburbs and the crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will put together some memorial stones and ask for new fire for the next generation and ask God to send fire on some old memories once again. Because God is looking for somebody to build an altar once again. I believe even right here in New York. And also it has to do with healing the racial divide in our nation right now. And so the Lord, the Lord began to speak to me about bringing all this together through this dream that I had about the dream of Martin Luther King. I shared this before, but I love talking about this dream. It's like I've shared it for the first time, to be honest. This has messed my life up, to be honest. Whatever you do, when you have a dream, hold on to it. Pray your dreams. Lean into them. Pray into your dreams. So I had this dream about Martin Luther King. In the dream, <clears throat> I'm on my way to Dr. King's uh, first church where he was a pastor and the civil rights movement got started. And in the dream, myself and my friend Lou Engel are driving to, this, to his church. But before I could get there, I first had to go pick up Dr. King. So in the dream, we go to this house to pick up Dr. King. Of course, it's a dream. So he comes out of this house. He's alive. And he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it in the dream. And he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. And then he comes to get into this vehicle with us. In the dream, I thought, the bag would make a nice souvenir. Right? I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. The bag would make a nice souvenir. I know. I'm carnal even in my dreams, right? <laughs> so, uh. In the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in America. And I began weeping in the dream. I wake up. I've been weeping the whole night. My pillow was soaked with tears. I didn't even realize it. Shared the dream with my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep. And we're like, what's the interpretation? I began to cry out, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me in the dream? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. And what the Lord was talking about. The black handles represented how I, as a black or African-American, had been handling my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I knew what he was talking about because I knew what it was like at 13 years old to be 
chased by a carload full of white guys and called the N-word, and these guys saying they were going to shoot and kill me. They were just joyriding, but we were terrified. I know what it's like at 19 to be falsely accused by a police officer for shoplifting, and, and uh, when he couldn't find anything on us, he, on me, he uh, began to say ugly things to me to try to provoke me into a fight. I know what it's like my 30s to get my first house and be driving around my neighborhood in the first three months, the, the same police officer for the first uh, 90 days every week would just pull me over just for driving while black, you know. But you know what I've done? For every person that was white <laughs> or a police officer in that region, I put those three accounts on every single person before I had a conversation with them. It's the devil's diabolical plot. It's uh, Revelation 12 where it says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. There were, the word accuser there is the, it comes from the Greek word kategoros where we get the word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the enemy is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other. So that before we can ever have a conversation with each other, we put the bad history or bad stories or bad experiences on anybody that looks like those encounters, and we put that on them. The Lord was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question for all of us today is this, what color is your baggage? God's saying, get rid of it, church, because we need each other, because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So I actually got to speak at that church after that dream. I was at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. My friend Lou Engel shared that dream, and I had this book called A Testament of Hope. It just happened to fall open to the I Have a Dream speech. 600-page book, falls open to I Have a Dream speech. I get to this part. Well, I'm reading this speech like a prayer from Dr. King's old pulpit, and I get to this part where it says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners could sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, I started praying for the family of the people who owned us where this killer pot came from. But little did I know that God was starting to bring more stones to build an altar. <laughs> so Lou asked me, share this at the Lincoln Memorial. Talk about memorials. Be Martin Luther King Celebration Day. Um, January 17, 2005, and that's where I happen to see this guy right here, Matt Lockett. Come up, sir. Good morning. We've had such an incredible weekend here with all of you, and I think that we don't spend enough time together. I, uh, I direct the Justice House of Prayer down in Washington, D.C. I've known Bill and Tammy and the team here for years. And um, I'm just thankful for this house. I just I have to say it again. I'm so thankful for you guys, for your lives, just uh, what you carry and just who you are. I watch you guys, and it's just it brings joy to my heart. Um, I want to start where Will left off. It was January 17th, 2005. And so we're kind of telling you a story here, and, and uh, it's a personal story. It's a story about his life, a story about my life, but, but I want to kind of start off and say that it's not just a story about these two guys. Our hope and our aim in telling this story, and what, what we think God is doing with this story is he's revealing something right now. De Havilland talked about how he raises up people.
people. He raises up families to be signs and wonders in the nation, not just to do signs and wonders, but to be signs and wonders. And I think that right now we're in a season where God is wanting to lift the curtain, so to speak, and, and reveal to us what he's been working on, to reveal his handiwork, to reveal uh, who we are and why we're here. I, I think that we spend way too much time like staring at ourselves, trying to figure out like, you know, what, what <laughs> we, we're gazing at the, the problems in our lives. You know, I think we need to gaze at him. And so something happened to me a year before the day that Will mentioned. It was actually one year exactly to the day when my dad passed away and it was unexpected. It was tragic. And I spent a year trying to figure out answers to some really big questions. So we're talking about memorials this morning. And for me, that was a season where I was looking for a memorial stone. I was the first one in my family to become a Christian. I got saved when I was 15 years old when a Methodist kid uh, built up the courage to, to, <laughs> to witness to me uh, in junior high school. And so I got saved uh, when I was 15. I was the first one in my family to become a Christian. And so uh, you know, maybe you can relate to that. You know how you kind of, uh, you, you go to the family reunions and you're not very popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not doing what everybody else does, you know. <laughs> I was that kid, you know, trying to preach to my dad and, and he didn't want to hear it, you know. So when he passed away, it was a really painful experience to me. And so I was, I wanted to find a memorial stone in my family. And so the way I went about that was I wanted to see, God, have you ever showed up in my family at any other time or am I it? You know, I wanted to find some meaning. And so, so I'm a believer. If you're a Christian, you, you're a believer. That means you believe something. I believe that my life has meaning. Okay? No, this is like real basic right now, but I don't, I don't think all of us know this. I believe in something. I believe my life has meaning. I believe that God has designed a purpose for each and every one of us. And I like to say it this way, that at some point, whenever it was, God had a dream, and then he wrapped flesh and bone around that dream, and you are the embodiment of the dream of God. Whatever bubbled up in God's heart, he says, oh, I got an idea. <laughs> he, he didn't sneeze and you fell out at you. <laughs> and that you landed here in 2019 in New York City, right? No, he actually had a plan. I, 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 in college, I came up in Campus Crusade for Christ, and, you know, I was taught how to share my faith and do evangelism. And how many times have we told people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And we sound like used car salesmen when we say that. So much so that it's, it's, it's kind of lost its meaning a little bit. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for you. You know what? God loves you, and he really does have a plan. And I've learned that in the most dramatic way. And so during that year, I'm looking for a memorial from God. Am I the first or am I the last? <laughs> Have you already done something? I'm looking for it. And so in my family, we couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. And my dad was one of 16 siblings. Huge family. Come on, grandma and grandpa. <laughs> and uh, they never knew where the lockets came from. We couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather because there had been like courthouse fires and loss of records, things like this. And so we've had family members try to find family tree stuff. How many of you have looked into your family tree? Look at that, three, four, five hands, that's it. 
And so we're losing stories right now in this generation. God's done something in our yesterday, and I think we need to rediscover it right now because there's promises that have not yet been fulfilled. And that's really what we're searching for right now. That's what all of us, whether we know it or not, this is what we're searching for. Is there, is there some unfinished business in the past that God's still aiming to get done? This is, this is the life, right? This is, God's inserted you. He's custom designed you. He's inserted you into the timeline right now for a purpose and a plan. So um, we couldn't find our family tree. And so I spent an entire year looking and just ended it more frustrated than it started because I didn't find anything. Hit all the same problems and roadblocks that my other family members had hit. And it was during that time that I had a dream. I love talking about dreams. We don't have enough time this morning. To, to go into it, like we should be like doing dream workshops in our houses of prayer. I think we, and you guys, you do the same thing we do. You cultivate a community of dreamers. I know you are. I can smell it. <laughs> oh, you get around it. You can feel it. You really can. This is a room full of dreamers. I can tell. But I had a dream during that time where God began to talk to me, it, was, it came from somewhere else. He talked to me about how he was going to shift the very culture, a fundamental cultural shift of an injustice in America and how he was going to do that through day and night prayer. Now, what's interesting is for me, I didn't know anything about, you know, this, this topic of injustice. You know, it wasn't something I was digging into. I didn't know anything about prayer, I'm sad to say, even though I've been a Christian most of my life. But the third part that was really strange was there was a man in my dream named Lou Engel. And I didn't know Lou Engel, but I talked to him. I actually met Lou before I ever met Lou because he talked with a raspy voice in my dream, too. If you know Lou, this is just the most bizarre thing. And so I actually, after I had that dream, I found out there was a real guy named Lou Engel. He's really doing this thing with prayer. And I decided to reach out to him. And so I, uh, I cold called somebody that worked with him. And I said, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he goes, really, what was your dream? This is weird. When you get around these kinds of people, man, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to do a drive-by and just drop this off and leave, and I'm done. And he totally took me seriously, so I told him the dream. And he goes, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what God is sending us to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. We're going to contend against injustice in America, and we're going to do it at the Supreme Court. We're going to do it through prayer. We're going to do a, a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on January 17th, Martin Luther King Celebration Day. Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. Oh, be careful with stuff like that. Yeah, you know, you go looking, you just might find something. But I was looking for a memorial stone, and so going to the Lincoln Memorial seemed like a pretty good idea. So I went. I made that trip, took my 10-year-old daughter with me. I have a picture of it. I want to show it to you. I, I didn't know why I was there, but I just took my camera and just started taking pictures. And... Uh, if you want to put that first image up, that's actually a picture of that prayer gathering. Wasn't a big one. You know, God can save by many or by few, right? Do you guys believe that? And so we gathered there that day. I don't know why, but we had to do it outside in January <laughs> for eight hours. It was zero degrees that day. You can see everybody's bundled up. It's pretty cold. That's the Lincoln Memorial in the background. And uh, if you look at that blue sleeve on the left side of the screen, if you follow it out to the fingertips, you'll see bundled up. <laughs> That's Will Ford. So the very first place that I ever came together with Will was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the very spot where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. And so we prayed that day. 
contended together. I really honestly didn't know why I was there. But one of the reasons that, uh, uh, that God drew me was I'd got my hand on a recording of Lou preaching. And he made this one statement that I want to share. He said this. He says, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it and you'll hear your name called. I, I, I was pierced to the very core of my being by that statement because here I'd spent a year trying to figure out some history of my family, had no idea, had been asking questions like, who am I, why am I here, and had come up with a goose egg, you know, looking for a memorial and had a, came up with nothing, you know. And so, so that statement was piercing my heart, and I had one prayer. God, do you really want me to go across the country to a prayer meeting? I can do that at my local church. But I had this one prayer, God, I want to hear my name called. I need to hear my name called. Who do you say that I am? Right? That's not, honestly, guys, you know, you might, it has a, it, you might be tempted to think that's what a weak person asks. It's not, it doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60. Your heavenly father wants to tell you who you are, who he says you are, right? Not what somebody else says you are. He wants to tell you who he says you are. And why you're here. And so I went to that prayer meeting praying, God, I want to hear my name called. And I showed up. We prayed that day. And honestly, I, I was done. After eight hours and zero degrees, I was done. Had my 10-year-old daughter with me. You know what it's like traveling with kids, probably. It's just, it's a pain. But the, the meeting was going to continue later that, that day at a local church. And I decided, I've come all this way. I have to go to that too. You know what it is. You, you're tired. You want to just call it a day. But we went, and that night there was a guest speaker, this guy named Will Ford, and he brought this kettle out here, and he told the story that he was sharing this morning that you've just heard. And, and I'm provoked by this because here's this memorial stone. I've spent a year looking for something like this. Didn't have it. I didn't know anything about my family, and here's this man who's talking, whose ancestors were slaves, and he has this rich spiritual history that he's sharing, this spiritual heritage about his ancestors who had contended for the nation. Here I am, a believer. I'm looking for some meaning for my life, and I got nothing at that point. That's not, you understand what I'm saying. Like, I'm married, got four kids. I got plenty of meaning in my life, but you know, I'm just, it's a time of searching. And I'm, I'm so provoked by it. I'm actually just weeping as, as I am hearing the story. I've got my 10-year-old daughter with me. And then he shares the part of the story that the kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett. Who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Wilford Sr., to Wilford Jr., to Wilford III? My 10-year-old daughter turned to me and said, Dad, he just said our name. What was my prayer? That's pretty weird, isn't it? <laughs> Bill, they agree with me. It's pretty weird. I mean, God's good, but he's real good. <laughs> So I went up, met Will uh, after the meeting. We started comparing notes. And so he asked me this question. He says, well, how did your lockets spell their name with one T or two? And I said, two. And he said, uh, well, where were they from? They, their lockets spelled it with one. He said, well, where were your lockets from? And see, we never really knew. My dad's family was from Kentucky. And, and we couldn't get any further than that. So I said, Kentucky. And he said, well, our lockets were all the way down in Louisiana. And uh, we thought it was just this amazing coincidence. But it was enough 
we actually prayed together that night. We prayed for racial healing in America. We did a little bit of confession and repentance just as a, as a, a white man, an African-American man. And it was really good. It was a powerful time. I just am so thankful that we, the first thing we ever did was meet in a prayer meeting. And the first thing we ever, we ever did together was we prayed. I think that's how this works. And so it was enough that Will and I actually struck up a friendship. God plucked me out of the marketplace and uh, called me to be a full-time missionary in Washington, D.C., joined with Lou Engel, and uh, just started trying to live the dream. You know, we have a phrase that we always say down there at J-Hop uh, in D.C. We say, you know, just do the dream. You know, a lot of times we overthink this stuff. It's not rocket science, you know. Most of the time, God talks your language. You know, we're trying to figure out if we can decipher God's language. God will enter your dream life and speak your language. And he does that so that you understand it. So that you have eyes that can see and ears that can hear. And if you don't understand it, handle it gently and stick it on the shelf because it'll come back around and it will make sense. Something will happen and the pieces will come together and the little breadcrumbs in your life that haven't made sense for the last decade will suddenly go including all the painful experiences. Can I add that? See, we most we spend way too much time praying for God to take to eliminate and remove the painful experiences of our life only to find out a decade, two decades down the road that that was actually part of the journey because God had to take you through some junk so that he could make a prayer. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? We're, we're praying for like a life that is stress-free. <laughs> but God will bring us through the fire so that he can cook a prayer. And you come out of that thing and you'll have authority on your life to speak into those dark situations. And you won't just be trying to help somebody with some theories. You know what I'm saying? That's what's up. <laughs> Give me one of those. <laughs> So I moved to D.C. and I joined with Lou and we just started praying. I threw myself into school of prayer. And uh, my, me and my whole family, I got four kids, my wife and I. And, and so uh, this, this October will be our 15th anniversary uh, since J-Hop began down in Washington, D.C. Pretty excited about that. But um, we began to pray, contend against injustice in the land. It's been really one of the primary mandates on the house. Will and I have been praying all these years, contending for racial healing in America, contending for revival, contending for a culture of life in America, and just wanting to see God break in. That maybe, just maybe, God will do something, right? That things that the way it's always been, it's not the way it always has to be. And far too many Christians live like, well, you know, that's just how it is. You, you understand what I, I mean? Come on. Like, are we believers or not? Or not? And so I'm daring to believe that God wants to break in and right old wrongs. This is who he is, guys. This is what he does. So uh, Lou Engel called me a few years ago, and, and uh, he said, hey, we're going to do one of these call events, one of these large prayer gatherings in the state of Virginia. 
and uh, Virginia is significant. It's the birthplace of the United States. Uh, uh, it's where the first settlers came in, and uh, um, the very first thing that happened was they planted a cross on the beach, and uh, uh, yeah, oh, maybe somebody, not all of you know that. Yeah, right down there, uh, the, the original sounds Williamsburg, Jamestown, all that. Very first thing they did was plant a cross and dedicate this land for the cause of Christ and the, and, and the, and the, the, the advancement of the gospel. So anyway, Virginia is a very significant piece of American history. It is our, our womb, so to speak. And so uh, Lou, um, he said, we're going to do a prayer gathering in Virginia, but if we do that, first we have to go pray at this strategic place called Appomattox Courthouse. Now, Appomattox uh, is significant in American history, and if you slept through history class like I did, you don't know that that the the you know you know that there was a civil war, but maybe you don't know the details of how it ended. So we fought this bloody war for four years. Seven hundred and fifty thousand people lost their lives in that war, but it boils down to the the spring of eighteen sixty five when General Robert E. Lee is. He's cut off in Richmond and Petersburg, Virginia. If you don't know the geography, that's fine. It's south of here. And he's cut off there. The Union Army is, uh, they've, they've put a siege on him, and they've blocked him off. And so he actually, they break through, and he goes into retreat across the state of Virginia. He's trying to get away, but he also is trying to get to where he can get resupplied because his men are running out of food, and they're running out of ammunition. And so they're being pursued uh, by the Union Army, and they get to this place in the middle of the state called Sailor's Creek. And uh, it was there that they fought the last battle of the American Civil War. Now, that's right next to a place called Appomattox Courthouse. If you don't know what Appomattox is, that's where they gathered on April 9th, 1865, and Lee surrendered to Grant. So he fights his last battle on April 6th. He surrenders unconditionally on April 9th. Can I just prophesy right now and say that another great surrender is coming to America? We are in a moment in time right now. This year marks the 400th anniversary of the first slaves being sold to that Jamestown settlement. April or August 25th, 1619. And so we're in a 400-year jailbreak season right now. How long was, how long was Israel in slavery in Egypt? Oh, we're in that moment right now, folks. There is so much prophetic purpose on this moment that we're in right now. I'm daring to believe that America could be in for a jailbreak, that people could go free. Something's going on right now. It's this year. Pray into it. So anyway, we go to Appomattox to pray. This is the place of surrender. And we pray in the actual room where Lee surrendered to Grant. But then we left him, went into this little bookshop at the visitor's center, and Lou and I step up to this bookshelf. We're standing side by side. And he grabs the first book off the shelf that caught his eye. It was this one. And he opens it to a random page. What is it about God who likes to make books fall open to specific pages? Now, I want to show you the page that it opened to. Uh, if you could put that next image up. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. Spelled with two T's. Now, that's weird. For me, because I've been praying into this stuff for years at this point, and Lou lets out a shudder, and he's like, what is this? I said, I have no idea. So I start reading, 
and researching this topic, what I found out is that the very last battle that Robert E. Lee ever fought was in the front yard of a family named Lockett on April 6th, 1865. The last battle was in front of a family, the front yard of a family named Lockett, and it was at nearby Appomattox that he surrendered. And so I'm thinking, I'm a believer. <laughs> Thankfully, I, I kind of think this might mean something. I believe that, you know, I'm looking for meaning. God, what are you saying right now? And so we actually, uh, uh, we, we said we we're going to go down and visit this place, but it was, it was uh, during that time that my brother, my older brother Bob, actually got the breakthrough in our family genealogy, and he discovered what we've never known about my family. And he called, and he's like, I got us back to 1645. And I was like, you're kidding me. And he's like, no, we actually came in as settlers through Virginia just a couple of decades after the original Jamestown settlement. And I was like, Virginia? Have I got a Virginia story for you? And I start telling him about the last battle of the Civil War, and he stops me. He goes, that's not that place down by Sailor's Creek, is it? And I said, that is exactly where it is. He says, oh, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. So after years of praying into this stuff, searching, he said my name twice. These are holy moments when you hear your name called. Oh, you got to lean into your holy moments. God got to hijack your days. He'll send somebody to you. He'll make a book fall open, whatever it takes. Don't worry about missing it. You won't miss it. He'll get you. So anyway, what I find out is that after years of praying into this stuff, I find out that the last battle of the American Civil War occurred in my family's front yard. I actually visited the site. I want to show you a picture of it so you don't think I'm exaggerating. Go ahead and switch to the next slide there. That is the Lockett Farmhouse. It's been preserved from the day of battle. If we could get up close to it, I could show you that it looks like Swiss cheese. It's still riddled with bullet holes from that day. Brandon was with me here when we went there that day. And uh, uh, that's a historical marker in the front yard that says, here Lee fought his last battle. There it is, folks. This is it. This is the real place. And the story goes that General Lee got to the front yard and he got the wagon train got stuck in the mud and the bridge over the creek broke down. And he had to turn around and make his last stand right there while the Union Army appeared from the trees in the backyard. And it said this, it, the historical account said, as you can see, the Lockett House was all that stood between the two armies. It's a picture of intercession, folks. That's Ezekiel 22:30 of standing in the gap. That house right there is a prophetic picture of what our churches and our houses of prayer are supposed to be. That we're willing to get right in the middle of the mess that our nation is in and dare to take the shots and bear the scars because it will leave some marks. But I believe that God has called us to be a place of standing in the gap and getting in the middle in between the brothers that are trying to rip each other to shreds. And I love this, that it says at the end of the day, that house became a hospital for both sides. And it said that the floorboards, the wooden floorboards were stained with the blood of both north and south. It is a picture of our houses of worship, our churches, our houses of prayer. They're supposed to be a place of healing, not a place of making the division even worse. Right? So this house stands as a memorial with 
a memorial in the front yard. So now I'm on this process of discovering memorial stones, but it didn't stop there. You're like my hype man. I love this. There's a front row seat right up here. So we go in. I meet the man who lives there, kind of a redneck historian kind of guy. And he asked me, what do you know about your family? I was actually shocked when I walked in and framed and hanging on the wall in the living room was the Lockett genealogy going back to Thomas Lockett of Virginia in 1645. And I get out my brother's research. It's a hand and a glove. It's my family. And so he asked me, what do you know about your family? I said, not much. He said some had left and gone to Kentucky. That's the only part we knew. But he said some left and went to the deep south and were involved in very significant historical events. But then he said this, some left and went to Louisiana. And in some cases, those handwritten census ledgers were, there was, they made a clerical error and accidentally changed the spelling of the name and dropped one of the T's. And so I'm, I'm, now I'm, I'm trying to put the, the breadcrumbs together and I'm thinking, this, this isn't possible, is it? Like, I know God's good, but is he that good? And so we're kind of stunned that day, didn't quite know what to make of it, but I gathered up all this stuff and I went down to Dallas where Will lives. And Will, why don't you come back up and share what we discovered? So Matt comes from D.C. to Dallas, and he lays out his research that he, that he has from his brother. And uh, when I tell you guys before, this pot comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. My slaves were for, you know, my slave forefathers were in Lake Providence, Louisiana. And the pot was passed around from Harriet Lockett to Noah Lockett to William Ford Sr. My, my grandfather, William Ford Sr., his name was first Lawrence Lockett. But my, uh, my great-great-grandfather, they didn't want him to have a slave last name, so they had a friend of hers named Ford, another named William, so they named him William Lawrence Ford. So that's how we would change. And then there was William Ford Jr., then me, William Ford III. And I had a genealogist look up some of the records in our family, and they found a man named Isaac Lockett who showed up in the 1870 census. So he's 90 years old in that census. So five years after slavery, 1870, more than likely he was a slave there in Lake Providence for most of that time. But in that census, he said, Isaac Lockett said that he was originally from Virginia. And so I did my research, and one of the few Lockett families in Virginia at that time was Matt's family. They were the last huge settlers there in, in Virginia. So we spent another year in research, and here's what we found through empirical evidence. We found that Matt's family is the family that owned my family, where this kettle pot came from. Right? So here's my family praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people who originally owned them and gave them their name, slavery comes to in in their front yard. But then because God is the God of the past and the future, he takes two people from the same family lines together and weaves their lives together because he still remembers the memorials of prayers and intercession of these people, even people in his own family. We'll get to that in a second. He said on these, on these old stones, on these old memories, 
I'm going after the next generation. I'm going to find the Mephibosheths in that family. And he brings us together. Isn't that powerful? Rest us up. So tell them what else we find. Oh, yeah. yeah let's, let's go to the next slide. Here's another really, really powerful thing that we, we found in that family history. This is uh, Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett. They were like the uh, Southern Bell aristocrats back in the day, right? Uh, they were the ones who uh, owned lots and lots of slaves. Uh, Napoleon owned like 126 slaves himself. Between he and his 11 children, they owned probably close to 1,000 slaves. And uh, Mary Lockett, she uh, was this uh, Southern Bell aristocrat, gone with the wind kind of aristocrat. And she didn't like the fact that the uh, Southern uh, Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer and designed and sewed together the very first Confederate flag. In other words, Mary Lockett was the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and she came up with the very first Confederate flag and hand-delivered it to a good friend, President Jefferson Davis. And this is what that flag look like, looks like. That's actually the Confederate White House that's been preserved. And the flag in front of it, that's the flag that Mary Lockett sewed together and put together. It was called the Stars and the Bars. But on the battlefield, that flag looked too much like the... Uh, like the uh, like the Union flag, so they said, let's come up with another flag, and that, so that became the Confederate battle flag, right? Which is the one we're more familiar with. But the whole idea of the Confederates even having a flag, it came from Matt's family, right? But think about it: through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our country, because of praying Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists in this family and all around the country, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up. Next slide. The flag of surrender goes up in their front yard because of prayer. Isn't that powerful? So, I mean, you can imagine being on this journey for all these years, trying to find out, like, you know, God, where have you shown up in the past? And then suddenly, like, I'd spent 10 years. See, it wasn't the story that connected Will and I. We've been praying together for almost a decade before we found any of this out. And so you can imagine, like, that was really hard to find out that, I've been listening to this story for all those years, and then I discover that it's actually like my connection to the story is to that of the slave owner. That was really painful, and so uh, we go a whole lot deeper on this thing, and I really think that's a big part of what God, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is what we did. We just started doing life together. I love this man. I love his family. I fight for his dreams. He fights for mine. And then God says, mm, let's lift the curtain a little bit now and show you some things that uh, I've been working on for a while. And so this all gets laid out now. For a year and a half, God let us sit right there on that point. And, and we didn't move off of it. For a year and a half, we, we had to wrestle through this process that it was actually my family that was woven into Will's family in this most dramatic way. But all of a sudden, he lifts the lid off, a little further off the family genealogy. He actually supernaturally led me uh, to research a little bit more history on revival. And I found out that in the previous war, the Revolutionary War, at the beginning of this nation, right, at the very formation of the United States of America during the Revolutionary War, God was faithful and he sent revival to the middle of Virginia. And I'm reading this account of how this very conspicuous revival sprung up in spite of the armies moving around at the same time. And it lists these men that were added to the itineracy of preachers as a result of the revival. And right there in the list is a man named Daniel Lockett. 
and I get out the family tree right there, right time, right place. One of my ancestors became a Methodist circuit rider as a result of this revival during a time of war. And I'm so thankful that God revealed this to me because, yes, I have slave owners in my family. But you know what? God had already started something. There was a memorial stone that was a little further back that God wanted me to discover. And this is why it's significant to the story is that at that time in history, the Methodist circuit riders were abolitionists. They were revivalists and they were abolitionists. In their horse saddlebags, they carried the gospel to the frontier. Right? We're going to visit a Methodist church just a few blocks with the, the revival history of the Methodist church. We're going to look at this in a little bit this afternoon. But here's the deal. They carried the Bibles and hymnals, but they also carried a thing called a manumission form. Do you know what that is? It's a legal document that lets you set your slaves free. It was required. You could not be a circuit rider and own slaves. And so can you imagine being in that altar call? Come on now. That you come front, you come forward to get saved, and then you're told that it's for freedom that Christ sets you free. <laughs> and then you're handed this document to set your slaves free at the same time. Listen, we know that is exactly what happened because when you study it, and I dare you to go study it, study the history of the abolitionists at that time. Everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves exploded exponentially. And that, guys, that's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform the human heart, to reshape culture in the world around us, and to change the direction of a nation. And God is using that kind of language right now. He's plucking this out of the past. He wants us to rediscover these type of memorial stones in the nation, but in our, the, our family lines as well. And he's pulling them into the now because it's not just them and them, but it's us and now. Amen. Amen. Very well said. So, yeah, so here's the deal. You know, my family, we have like people who have done stuff we're not proud of. I got family members in prison. I've done stupid stuff. Thank God for the blood of Jesus and redemption, right? But they have these folks back here who are contending for revival and the, and the ending of slavery. You know, Matt had family members who owned slaves. We also had family members who fought for slaves to be free and were abolitionists and other things. We all have in our families generational curses and generational blessings. And the blessings, listen, generational curses go to three and four generations, sometimes ten. Generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever. Generational blessings and curses, they represent these storylines, these dominating themes on our families. What God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse, what storyline are we going to be a part of? Let me, we're going to bring this to a close. Well, let's read this last thing. I'm look at the, let's look at the memorial stones of and with the Elijah. When he had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, I told you, they, when he had a showdown, he said, God, don't you remember? So he gathers these 12 stones to rebuild the altar. Here's what he says in 1 Kings 18.30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And you know what happened next. The fire fell down and the people began to shout, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Because somebody provoked God to remember. Because they remembered. God sees those 
12 stones. He doesn't see a pile of rocks. He remembers his covenant with his friend Abraham. But then also something else is powerful that Elijah says. He says, come near to me. You know the other time that somebody said, come near to me? It was Joseph. Joseph said four words that saved the whole nation of Israel when he spoke to his 11 brothers. They sold him into slavery. And he could have destroyed the whole nation of Israel in that moment and killed all of his brothers. But he said four words that saved the whole nation. Please come near to me. That's what God is saying right now. He wants us to say that to each other. Please come near to me. Let's build an altar. Let's bring these memories together. And we got, we're saying on these old stones, release a new fire for the next generation. I know God loves to remember because you know why? He took two guys and gave them dreams. And led us to a memorial on MLK Celebration Day. To the very place where Dr. King said, now I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners can sit together at the table of brotherhood. Because we have a God who loves to remember. He hadn't forgotten about the prayers of your mother, your father, your grandfather, your grandmother, our forefathers in this nation. He's looking for a new generation to gather the memorial stones once again. To say, God, on these old stones, release a new fire for the next generation. Because I still have a Mephibosheth out there, God. It's time for them to come home. Because I and the children who the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders yeah. in Israel. It's time for the children.